morning, afternoon, evening, everybody. I, I know I'm excited a lot of the time. And I know I say I with this with a lot of my guests, if not all my guests, but I'm really, really, really excited to introduce this wonderful soul on Soul Coffee. Uh, Dr. Melissa, she is a medical doctor. She is a board certified and also Harvard trained psychiatrist. She is the CEO and founder of Melissa Hankins Coaching, a coaching and consulting firm that's committed to helping physicians and other high performers overcome burnout and helping organizations create and maintain this very important concept called psychological safety. So that way the individuals can have a sustainable environment where they can cultivate their well-being. Well, she's a certified executive coach uh, and also trauma-informed as well in emotional freedom techniques such as tapping and is a practitioner in that capacity. She provides individual and group coaching as well as interactive trainings and workshops and is available for organizational retreats and speaking engagements. And uh, I've had the chance to interact and we met back in, I believe it was 2020, it's crazy to say, but 2021 already when there was that popular app of the classrooms and different things. And I was graced with her presence and being able to appreciate in a different conversation about burnout as um, uh, with Dr. Jonathan, you know, a cardiologist as well too, that was just, you know, uh, international um, realm of speaking on this phenomenon that we experience as doctors with burnout and different things. And she is an international speaker. Uh, my, one of my favorite attributes is that she is a woman of color as well too, speaking to this, because I think that there's certain things that black folk, that Latinos that experience burnout in a, unique form and way too. But y'all, I'm excited for y'all to hear her laugh. I'm excited for y'all to feel her energy as she is an absolute force. And this has been an episode building over the last few years, y'all. So please welcome to the show, Dr. Melissa Hankins, everybody. Yay. Thank you so much. What a beautiful introduction. Yes, man. You make it easy, Doug. You make it easy. Make it easy. And one thing she also oh. makes... I already started to drop the gems right in the pre-chat. I was like, oh, well, time to go. And something that she shared is, is that it's time to bring what has been hiding in the shadows up as it is no longer acceptable. And, you know, with your very unique lens of the world, Dr. Melissa, you know, what do you think is most important for physicians? Let's start there for physicians to understand about burnout, about compassion fatigue, about vicarious trauma and about what they might be keeping well swept and hidden? Yes, great, great question. And, you know, I think first and foremost, to recognize that you are not alone. We are so isolated. We, we, we think that, especially as physicians, high achievers, we get to these levels where we are the leaders, either actually given titles as leaders in leadership positions or just de facto because of our level of education, our experience. And, and when you reach these higher levels, it becomes more and more isolating. Right. And even as physicians in particular, we're taught from the get go that you are the one to hold the responsibility, that that the buck stops with you and that you are uh, we're, we're dealing you know, with people's lives. We're, we're, we're doing serious business here in, in the work of medicine and healthcare, And and 
we often will shove our personal feelings, emotions, um, wants, needs aside in order to be there for our patients and to be there even for our colleagues. And yet when we have a fear, when we have a, a self-doubt, when we have a need that's not being met, we keep it to ourselves. Mm. And, and so recognizing that you are not alone in this, that there are others, um, probably most, who are feeling similar fears and doubts and and um, angst in mm -hmm. in all of the ways and overwhelm uh, and recognizing that you're not perfect and trying to be perfect and and all of those things um, just really recognizing that hey there are others like me and it's time for us to come together and release the shame around mm -hmm. being human being vulnerable and having our own needs and wants. Mm -hmm. Beautiful, beautiful start. One thing that poked out to me is that we keep it to ourselves or we just stuff the wants, stuff the emotions, stuff the needs, and then we just keep stuffing it all in the fascia, all in the muscles, all in the neurology until, you know, you keep stuffing, stuffing, stuffing things. I just picture like popcorn, just like busting from the seams. Yeah. Like, and that's when it leaks out non-consciously. That's when you act out in a way that's out of integrity for yourself, mm -hmm. because once more, your nervous system is dysregulated and it's dysregulated because you haven't allowed yes. or you haven't given yourself permission to let things flow, to let things be communicated, to let things open up. And one of my favorite things that you also speak to, as you say, you're a recovering perfectionist um, as well, too. And also there's you speak to workaholism from what you found with your work with uh, physicians and organizations, what's the root cause from your lens, uh, perfectionism or workaholism? You know, um, so, so when we look at things like burnout, of course, there are the absolutely the systemic issues issues that come from the organization and that's known and we recognize that um, and there are factors that organizations absolutely need to take however when we look at the individual uh, and and i think that's where i'd like to focus really you know on the individual uh, physician healthcare provider um, that that we can sometimes be our own worst enemies. You know, <laughs> we can uh, show up in these ways, uh, whether it's perfectionism or workaholism, that are really driven by fear uh, and uh, or this need, fear of not being. Um, respected, not having a sense of belonging, not feeling loved, these things, when we drill down, when we really drill down to, to what are the core issues. Um, for me, for example, when I think about my perfectionism and workaholism, when I was practicing clinically, uh, I, I was very much 
a perfectionist my entire life. I mean, that was like, I was out of the womb, a perfectionist. <laughs> and, and that is true, I think, for so many physicians. Uh, and, and it really, uh, for me, and for so many of us, comes down to this need for having love and a sense of safety in our environments. And so that can start with our family environments, but that absolutely moves into our clinical environments. So when we are thrown into med school or medical training, you're in an environment where it is scary. You're yeah. there wanting to do good, but you've got people's lives in your hands. And that is not normal. That is not a normal thing. <laughs> and so... Yeah. So when we do that, we are conscientious, of course, and uber responsible. We want to do the best. We want to do no harm. And, and so we are trying our best to do things perfectly, to not draw the ire and, and uh, disapproval um, uh, and even threats of, of, you know, discontinuation of programs and things like that from our superiors, right? Mm -hmm. So we're there and it's like almost like we're children learning from our caregivers, our adult, you know, models who create this zone of safety for us. And so in order to have that sense of belonging from them, to have that sense of acceptance from them, we want to do everything to make sure that we are not going to be ousted out of the tribe. Mm -hmm. So, so I think really that sense of, okay, perfection, perfectionism, I have to do it all right. Um, because that will keep me safe. You mm -hmm. know, workaholism is also workaholism comes, you know, I think really stems from once again, you know, people are like, oh, they're a great team player, you know, give them, you know, they'll step up and do it. But once again, where is that coming from? Is that coming from a sense of um, it's an addiction? Workaholism is a form of addiction and mm -hmm. addictions, uh, um, as I know, you know, you know, we know um, that we look at the addictions stem from a sense of needing to create some sense of safety mm -hmm. and stability. Yeah. So yeah. I know yeah. I've just said a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> right here. I love the, the reminder that workaholism, it can be uh, an expression of addiction. And one thing that my good friend, Michael Tucker, that's also certified by the ICF or International Coaching Federation, um, he hit me with a quote and it was, uh, the black man's biggest flaw is his addiction to his own work. Black man's biggest flaw is his addiction to his own work. Uh, I, I wasn't expecting to dive in immediately in this realm, but I really, really want to know, you know, from your realm, working with and seeing in your own firsthand experience, how is it do you see um, previous traumas, little T's and big T's playing out 
generationally in black folk or people of color in healthcare and in medicine and how is that shifting how they move through school and how is it shifting through how it's then playing and following them in to their professional careers yeah yeah uh, you know coming back to you know my earlier comment about the more the higher up we we go in terms of leadership scales um, or even higher educational scales the, the less melanin that we see you know and so so there is this this need oftentimes just from a pure safety standpoint yeah. of i need to have a sense of not standing out you know in order for me to to um continue to achieve or even just maintain there's often the i'm not going to uh make noise i'm just going to assimilate mm. and then we're denying elements of ourselves and so while we may you know be uh <laughs> I'm just having so many thoughts going through my head right now um, that, that, you know, my thinking comes faster than my speaking. So, <laughs> but, but just that, <laughs> that idea of uh, we are looking to, we want to be a, a voice oftentimes for equality because of maybe what we've experienced ourselves. However, to do that is, is very tricky because if mm -hmm. you become too outspoken, you become angry and aggressive, especially as women, but you know, mm -hmm. men too, you know, the angry, you know, the angry black woman trope, you know, uh, as opposed to being assertive, you know, you know, a lot of, you know, white males will be seen as assertive, you know, of, uh, people of color are seen as aggressive <laughs> and and so with with the same behavior so it's this threat so you're you're looking to have a a seat at the table and have a voice um and yet in order to get there you often need to to bury some of who you are and and that is so so disheartening and once you're there it takes a lot of unpacking to rediscover your voice and to allow yourself to do that and find safe corners and i think that's part of it you know start to find safe corner safe people where you can practice showing up you know mm. um maybe it's one colleague before you show up in a meeting in a way that mm. that really speaks your mind but start to gain some confidence in in yes this is acceptable to me this is this is who i am and this person has seen me for who i am you know, so once again, and that comes to, you know, areas of psychological safety, which we can talk about, but let me stop there for a moment and get your thoughts. 
Yeah, well, I, I love the yeah. reflection as I think going through school for me, we were, we're the most, I'm from Life University, that's where I graduated from, shout out to Life U. And out of a class of 208, I believe there was about 15, there's, I think there was eight black men and I think there's about 10 black women. And that made up roughly about like 10%. And that's a lot. Like my profession, there's 1% of us are, chiropr- are, are black. Yeah. And, you know, there is a conversations I've had with other chiropractors, chiropractic students, other medical doctors as well, too. Like I've, I've worked with a chief nephrologist over out East. And there's just this concept of not having that sense of belonging which is a very, very biological need. And when there's that need not being met, well then for me, you're already gonna start to vamp into a stress state or a fight or flight state versus actually being able to be present. And then in that fight or flight state, that's where your integrity gets sacrificed. And part of your integrity is a recognition of your wholeness. And in recognition of your wholeness, I think that's exactly where you bury uh, a bit of who you were, which is traumatic. You're repressing that part of you. You're not able to bring that forth and then you know, how long does that stay? Is that, that the duration of your career? Is that the duration? Because, you know, we only maybe have a few generations of black physicians. Um, I, I know that black uh, chiropractors couldn't go to the main chiropractic school, uh, PSC, back until like, like late 1950s, but chiropractic inception was back in 1895. So I think that there, I imagine with physicians and nurses and um, black folk in healthcare, there's like this gap already of well we aren't we weren't even able to serve and then when we get there we're of course we're considered the minority i'll say here in the united states uh, and there's just this need for a sense of belonging because we're trying to fit into this box that was quote unquote prescribed to us from the higher ups which i'd even argue that and you know we've talked about in the past that it's almost like a pledging process where it's like oh you got to pay your dues you got to sacrifice all that sleep you got to go through residency you got to go through all these different you have to essentially suffer because we have suffered versus really examining organizationally and educationally what can be shifted for more sustainability for the residents more sustainability for the students because i find that people then just carry that trauma when they were students and then they bring it into when they are professors or when they are docs and there's like this unacknowledged part of themselves that wants to be acknowledged, but they don't even know how to bring permission to have that acknowledged. And that's just been, that's been perpetuated for the last several decades. Yes, yes. Oh my goodness. Wow. Wow. Yes. So, you know, I'm, I, I'm thinking just of my own. So I'm biracial. I was raised by uh, a white mother, a single white mother in Utah. Um, so, uh, and for those, uh, of your listeners who are not aware, Utah is a very majority state <laughs> where I always joke. Um, so my sister and I, when we went to elementary school, I always joked that there, uh, so from kindergarten to sixth grade, there were, you know, uh, literally, uh, I think five of us, five black children, including myself and my sister through the entire school and um and uh and i always uh, kind of joke yeah it was me my sister and the utah and members of the utah jazz basketball team you know who who were in utah (laughs) (laughs) some color but but 
you know, it, it was really interesting because for me growing up that way, I had, uh, there was racism in, in my family, certainly in the community, but even within certain family members. And, and so it was not safe for me to be black. My father was Nigerian, but he was not part of my life at all. So he wasn't in the picture. So it was my mom and her family. And really for me to have a sense of safety and belonging, I learned to assimilate very quickly. And I, and I, and I hesitate to use that word simply because my white culture is very much uh, as, as much a part of me as my, my black heritage. Right. Yeah. So, so when I say yeah. a, a, a assimilate, um, it's more about repressing anything that was seen um, by others as or identified as being black, quote unquote, yeah. you know, whatever that might have been. And uh, uh, so so that's something that was entrenched in me uh, as part of my blueprint, you know, from mm -hmm. very early on. And then in eighth grade, we moved to Central California and I was there from until high school. And then I went out to Harvard for for um, undergrad and in in Boston in Cambridge Massachusetts and and uh, um, I remember going there and feeling really out of place and uh, because I didn't belong I felt like I didn't belong in any way I didn't belong socioeconomically my mom died when I was 16 and and so we really we struggled uh, my oldest sister became guardian you know so there was a lot of we really struggled financially so I didn't belong socioeconomically I didn't feel like I belonged um, you know racially and so so all of this was part of my patterning and so when I then came into eventually went to medical school. I went to medical school at Boston University School of Medicine. And then I did my psychiatry residency at Harvard Longwood um, in, in Boston, and uh, which is now a, two separate residencies. Um, but once again, it was very much um, me navigating who I am in these very um, white centric, if you will, you know, environments. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and I remember when I was actually looking at residency programs and there was a residency program that I, I, I didn't attend, but a very, very prestigious, uh, residency program um, uh, and and the residency director when I was interviewing uh, said was showing me a, a picture of all of the classes for the residency you know all of the the you know years and there was not one black face and he said you could be a pioneer of sorts 
<laughs> and and I'm sitting there thinking, and and I think he, you know, a white male, and and I think he 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 thought of that as perhaps something that I would want to do. But I sat there thinking, I don't want to be a pioneer. I don't want to be that. I just want to get through and do the best that I can. But I don't want to be the voice for mm. all uh, and the representant, the representative for all mm. that is black. Mm. Because it's diverse, first of all, and second of all, I was trying to figure out who I was in my black culture, black identity, anyway. <laughs> right and then they're like hey you could be the pioneer when you're like whoa 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 wait i'm trying to figure this out still right 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 and i think so many of us as we get into these positions um as physicians and healthcare professionals that how in in higher whether in other fields um were were the only face or one of very few faces at the table and we become the de facto representative of all that mm. it, we, we, we become the expert how many yeah. times i'm sure you <laughs> yeah you it's you know you're the one you're you, everyone turns to you um uh, uh so do you have an answer for how we can uh, engage more black patients in, 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 you know, in the clinic or, or serve the community? And, and because you're the voice, uh, because of course it's a homogeneous population. What? No. Mm -hmm. So, so it's, it, um, you know, all of this to say that we're put in these spaces where we're asked to be a voice. We're still figuring out how much of a voice is safe for us to have. Yeah, that part. And yes, yes. It's like, do you really want to know my thoughts on this? Right. Or right. do you just, right. do you want the thoughts that are going to help you to feel like you're doing something that will really benefit um, our black and patient of color populations, you know, things like that. I think it's very, well, I'm very appreciative for you painting the journey a bit. And I think one of my favorite quotes that uh, my mentor Brett says is that, you know, burnout doesn't happen because of the work. It happens due to the resistance that can come with the work. And I think of friction and I think of having this added weight of, you could say our ancestors, of uh, all eyes are on you, of like even going through school, like when people learn to adjust, like when they're working with someone that has some braids in or some locks and like, it's, it, it becomes a sensitive subject, even though I don't think it, you know, logically it wouldn't need to be, but I think it's because mm -hmm. everyone experiences or is experiencing the weight of trying, quote unquote, to include um, and consider other populations, especially right now, like, especially throwing pronouns, you throw in how people might identify with um, their sexuality, of course, as well, too. It's like the world, it's like there's already so much for us to consider. And I think if we were able to 
yes, absolutely acknowledge that because it's acknowledging suffering, it's acknowledging lineage, it's acknowledging just the history that has been. And we can then look beyond to then what are now the base components of these needs that haven't been been met. And then now uh, my question for you is, you know, individually and organizationally, what have been some of the biggest strategies that you found to be effective when implementing people that are experiencing burnout, that are experiencing, you know, maybe perhaps some extra weight, uh, people of color, and then just organizations as well, too? What are some of the key components? Right. So with individuals, uh, I really, uh, one of the important things is to make a decision to actually create and, and take time for yourself to have a period of self-reflection. Yeah. Uh, and, um, so, so we often will say, you know, we don't have time. We don't have time. And it's, it's true, but it, it may be, okay, wait, can you find even 20 minutes? It doesn't have to be hours and hours of time. It might be just 20 minutes to learn to check in with yourself because we have been ignoring ourselves for so long meeting the needs and wants of others professionally and personally as caregivers um, we often ignore and aren't listening to our own bodies and our own thoughts and so that is is a key component and finding different ways to do that uh, because I, I would say, you know, you know, jumping to looking at values and this and that, which is really important, that that would be like a next step. But first, we have to actually help our bodies and our nervous systems calm down, slow down, you know, breathe, actually start to regulate. Because we are so out of our bodies and we're in our heads or even out of our heads you know, mm. so much that we don't even know what it is that we're needing or wanting. Mm. We just know something is wrong. Mm. Mm. So I think that's the very first thing. Give yourself permission to create some space 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, you know, once a week, twice a week, something where you can allow yourself to connect with your body and just do a check. You can go for a walk. You can do some breathing. You can, I do tapping, you know, um, emotional freedom techniques, and, uh, which I think is phenomenal. Uh, of course, I think it's phenomenal because... <laughs> Because it is, and so, but but there are all kinds of things that we can do to start to rediscover ourselves. Mm. I just love the basic permission and even like culturally encouraging or community-wise encouraging permission uh, to be able to start to take the self-inventory because everyone knows the book now, which I'm grateful for. The body keeps score, but what I want to welcome people deeper into is actually the body knows 
world of mm. philosophy, the body isn't dumb. It it has certain requirements nutritionally, of course, that need to be met. I wish my good friend Taishino is a personal trainer out here. She's a beast with nutritionist or being you know, very cognizant, teaching her clients about nutrition and the potency of the food because that carries codes that will then help us, you know, carry out the millions of biological processes that are having happening on the second to second. And because it's a body mind complex and the two are interwoven, if people I think were to give themselves permission to even just slow down, of course, to help regulate their nervous system in multiple different ways, um, whether it be getting more attuned to their body, slowing their breath, tapping one, uh, Deb Dana is a great book that I've been into anchored how to befriend your nervous system, which is based off yeah. of hot vagal theory as well, too. That's super, super good in case anyone yeah. needs resources. Absolutely. I can't recommend that book enough. Um, but she talks about savoring the moment. She talks about slowing down and being able to appreciate the glimmers of ventral vagal, the glimmers of parasympathetic. So it's like if you're a healthcare provider, if you're a parent, you're just going in all day, you know, what are the what are the seconds or the moments or the instances during your day that you can attune your nervous system or your, your reticular activating system towards like whether it be the windows are open and you hear a bird chirping. Can you hmm, like what are the ways that you can connect to nature even though you might be in an artificial environment or an unnatural environment? Because like you said, it's not a normal thing to be able to give care and be responsible for people's lives because on the other side of their life is death. And I think that's something as well, too, that we can unpack a bit as a lot of physicians and nurses, they don't even have the time to process or grieve some of the death that they're experiencing um, on the day to day. And there's been like, just, you just got to compartmentalize it or you just got to eat it. It's a part of the job. You know, what are your thoughts when it comes to grieving actively? Yes, yes. I want to come, I want to come to that question, but I also don't want to ignore the other part of the question you asked previously about what can organizations do. And, right. and so I just want to, before we leave that completely, you know, this, so, you know, I was mentioning the first thing uh, that individuals can do is stop and, and listen to their bodies, right? Organizations can stop and listen to their staff. <clears throat> Say it again. So, and what that really means is that you are creating time and spaces to invite invite feedback invite commentary invite discussion in a way that will allow people to voice their thoughts and their opinions and their questions and concerns in a non-judgmental arena in a non uh retaliatorial uh, environment because of people, once again, and this comes back, this comes to the uh, aspects of psychological safety, right? People are not going to voice uh, their concerns or thoughts or show up authentically if they feel they are going to be shamed or punished for it. And there is so much shame that, uh, in medicine. Uh, 
in in the the educational system of uh, uh, the educational path of of becoming a physician. There's so much shame and humiliation and fear um, that is posited on medical students and residents and, and junior staff uh, that that creating environments where people can actually say, hey, I don't agree with this, or hey, this this is something that I am uh, concerned about, or I have a question about, or hey, I made this mistake. I need help. I in, need uh, yeah, I, I, and, and I need help in, in, either, you know, rectifying it or learning from it, or how can I improve without being punished, without being humiliated. Uh, and, and so organizations can really start by listening, actively listening. And, uh, and that starts, you know, from leadership. So, so, you know, I, so listening on an individual level to ourselves and listening on an organizational level, right, um, to our staff. Mm. So those, you know, if, if, if you need to start, that's the place to start, you know. And so now coming to your, before I jump to the other, anything you want to, you know, uh, say about that or. Yeah, so I love the, I love that listening is just the individual to organizational rec, uh, place to start because if you're not listening, well then the body's just going to turn up the symptoms until it puts you down or there's a organizationally there's a massive strike, the body's literally yes. starting to, or the individual cells that make up the body that make up the organism or the aka the organization, the cells are like mm, no never mind just because you're not. The, the brain, which I imagine is, you know, the CEO and the C-suite leadership or the leaders, the decision makers, they're not efforting to create space and time for. And that is, for me, that becomes, that, that makes perfect sense to, it's only a matter of time because if you're not listening, when that's part of my work too, I help my people listen and trust their bodies. So that way they can reform a relationship with it. Because I think as human beings, we're all building relations all the time. And it's so beautiful and so important to make sure that we keep doing that with our folk and with our people. So I just love, I love that. A quick, I guess it doesn't need to be quick. My question is, you know, what if uh, an individual finds themselves in a space or place where they're not being heard and, you know, the leadership just simply isn't, uh, they don't care or they don't have time or they don't want to allocate funds to take care of the individuals. Right. So, you know, there are, uh, <clears throat> I encourage people, uh, the individuals that I coach to see if they can find one ear, you know, start with one, you know, this idea, because an organization is made up of people <laughs> and individuals to become this, this unit, right? Just like the body is made up of individual cells. Yeah. to create, you know, this. It's so, so when we are, uh, when we can identify maybe just one person that 
we can start to to voice um, our concerns to someone who has some empathy for what we're saying. Um, and and if if that person is in a position of authority, they can perhaps sponsor your ideas or sponsor you to other higher ups. Mm. Now, if an organization is like, nope, if, if you truly cannot find anybody, you know, you do not have to stay there. <laughs> you do not have to continue to uh expend your energy your life force your 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 skills your talents it's not you don't have to be a martyr so looking at is this something that is tenable for me or not you know is this a situation where it's it really isn't going to work now the caveat that i would say with that is that when people are like oh it's you know i'm so burnt out this organization blah 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 blah, and they don't take the time and space to do the internal inventory and the internal work if you are bringing yourself in the way that you react uh, in terms of your behaviors, your trauma responses, all of that, if you continue to just ignore that and you say, okay, yep, I'm out of this organization and go somewhere else, you are bringing all of that with you. And so eventually that will show up in some form or another. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. so it's going to be somewhere else. Right, right. That yes, I, I, I'm, I agree that, you know, there are absolutely some toxic workplaces, without a doubt. However, it's also important to take responsibility for how am I showing up? How do I choose to show up? You know, and, and so that's, that's kind of the part two of listening, um, taking action. You know, what, what is, okay, I'm listening and what am I needing, you know, on an individual level, on an, for an organization, okay, I'm listening to the staff, what are they needing? And then taking the action, just listening um, without actually making a conscious decision one way or the other, you, once you start to listen, I think this is one of the things that can be difficult for people. Once they start to listen, then they know that they are making a conscious decision to actually follow what their body is telling them they need um, or not. Right. And so that is comes back to accountability and responsibility yes. for one. Yes. Oh, that's, that's, that's lovely. Yeah, that's a lovely reflection because it's all about just personal responsibility and collaboration, but I love because even when you start to take inventory and you slow down, you're already starting to enter a parasympathetic neurology. You're already starting to slow things down. Mm -hmm. You'll be able to have more access to moments where you can savor different things. Or, um, But it's even just the act of self-inquiry. And one of my favorite quotes in that book, Anchored, is the only journey is within. 
And a lot of people are scared to take that first step because then once more, now you're going to be equipped with more awareness. Now that you got this increased awareness, well, what are you going to do about it? Are you just going to continue to ignore yourself or are you actually going to effort to now take the right steps? Cause it's all, it's all just about longevity. It's not, um, it's not a, uh, like for me, like I offer to reframe for people. Like I need, it's about quality of life. It's about your health. It's about your wellness. It's about your ability to adapt. And oftentimes we're in a society where we don't value health until it's already gone out the door. And then we got to cultivate so many things to be able to build that back up versus just keeping sacred what already is and having reverence for that at a very high level. And I think when we can make that the standard more so versus, and it's not to say there isn't like seasons or weeks or days where you're going to need to push, but it's just the increased listening and awareness that I think is going to make the biggest difference. Yes. Yes. Really allowing ourselves that, that space of, okay, I'm listening and now I need to make a decision. And you know, I will throw in with that, showing ourselves compassion. Yes. Because, you know, it's so important when we are listening and we're like, "Mm, yeah, I need to make a change. Mm -hmm. But, you know, change is, is, of course, you know, we always hear change is scary. It's because it is scary because our bodies are not, and our minds and our energy systems are like, wait, is that safe? I'm safe here, even though it's chaotic, even though it's toxic, at least I'm surviving right now. My, right. my body is surviving. Yeah. Right. But I don't know if I make that change, even though it's a good change or a change I quote unquote should make. And I tell my clients don't shit on yourselves, but you know, um, so that, uh, diapers just shitting all over themselves. Yes, yes, exactly. It it really is like, what do we want to um, do and know that, yes, okay, I'm going to make, I'm going to start with a small aspect of that change. I'm not going to overhaul everything all at once. And you know what, I can move forward and maybe I'm going to take some steps back and I'm going to show myself compassion because especially with folks who are burnt out and already overwhelmed, you know, part of that change is first I need to help my body and my nervous system and my my entire being to experience a sense of self-trust and safety. Oh, that's so good. Mm. It's in it's in ventral vagal versus a fight or flight versus a dorsal vagal shutdown where we'll actually be able to right. discover self-compassion, um, self-curiosity, but it's, it's the curiosity. Cause I think if you listen more, you're like, like, I don't know when you hear, you hear a noise in the house and it's just you and you're like, you get curious. Cause you're like, that's, that's more so survival. You're like, the hell is that? The hell is that? Right. Versus being in a relaxed physiology, like taking a listen and be like, wow, you know, what, what do, what, what is coming up for me? And, and that's where, there's just so much gold there. There's so much gold there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, cultivating, um, cultivating 
tools and methodologies for yourself that help you to do that. You know, so uh, try something out. You know, I, I tell people, try something out. You know, some people are going to resonate with the tapping. Some people are going to resonate with walks in nature. Some people are going to resonate with, you know, um, journaling uh, or, or breathing exercises or some other form of exercise or Qigong or, you know, things, all different types of things that you can do and you can, you can try them out, try them out for a period of time, say, Hmm, this is working. Um, and I'm going to stick with it, but maybe I want to add something else or, Oh, this isn't working for me, but don't give up on yourself in that change. Just well, know that there might be something else that you need. Um, uh, to help regulate your nervous system at that point. That's good. Don't give up on yourself. I love that because that brings me to another point where we were chatting before and, uh, you know, it's just a conversation of a lot of people don't want to take responsibility or they don't know how to, and that can be due to a diminished capacity. Uh, I'd love to know, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, we are doing the best that we can in each moment, right? And, and the next moment we can choose to show up differently. Uh, and it can be for some people, it can be a moment to moment thing. You know, if their capacity is so low that it's like, okay, I just need to get through this moment. <sighs> okay, got through this moment. I got to get through the next moment. Okay, got through that moment, you know, <laughs> it's so, so it might be, you know, at that level, depending on the level of burnout and exhaustion and overwhelm and depletion that someone has, you know, it might be like, oh, okay, I got up out of bed today. Oh, okay. I got in a shower today after not showering for three days, you know, I mean, it might be to that level for some yeah. folks or it might be where, okay, you know what? I, I got through this day or I got through this week and this was great. And now I just, uh, you know, I, I think of sometimes uh, uh, when I, uh, I'm thinking for myself when I've scheduled, say, a lot of talks, like a lot of professional talks. Um, I did this earlier this year, and I just had a lot of big talks um, within the span of a couple of weeks. And I'm like, don't ever do that to yourself again, Melissa. Because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a matter of you know, or creating, you know, slide decks and practicing talks and, and someone involved traveling and, you know, all of this. And, and it's like, and it was go, 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 because I had deadlines, right? And, and uh, in recognizing that, okay, well, that was an experiment. But I can choose to do something different next time because my body is like, yeah, we don't like that experiment. <laughs> let's let's create more space. Let's create some downtime, right? Yeah. 
So, so I think, you know, these uh, being able to, to look at for ourselves, what is, um, what is something that we want to do, uh, but maybe are afraid to do, right? And that might be simply um, voicing our thoughts in a meeting, you know, uh, applying for a new uh, a, a promotion or, you know, speaking up and setting a boundary with a colleague, you know, and what what is that? Before we do that, it can be something where we are wanting to play that out in our heads, play those things out, envision them, and then do one of those checks for your body. What does that feel like? Where mm. am I holding that fear? You know, mm. what is that telling me? What am I afraid is going to happen? Mm. And is that real? You know, and of course our bodies are like, oh, hell yes, it's real. <laughs> but, but is it really, you know, are there ways that we can tune into that and speak to those parts of ourselves? Mm. And, you know, I could go on a, whole other tangent about parts are different parts, you know, that are showing up in different ways. And those are the things that are keeping us stuck and, and from moving forward or listening to our bodies or, you know, or the parts of us that are feeling traumatized and fearful are the ones that are speaking up, uh, you know, yeah. uh, and telling us, stop, 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 stop. This is too much for me. This is too much. This is too fast. This is, um, it's happening for too long, you know, or it's, you know, so, you know, my definition of trauma are, you know, these kind of four things too much, too soon, too much, too fast, too much for too long or too little for too long. It can be any one of those things. Wow. Right. So, you know, and, and those I, you know, other people have said those things in, in different ways, but, but that's really when it boils down to what is our nervous system? Our nervous system is saying, hey, that's too much. It's too soon. I'm not ready for that. Let's dial it back. Or so we go into shutdown or we go yeah. into, so we go into, you know, we go into flight, we go into freeze or we go into fight, you know. We go into fawn. So our trauma responses are are showing up in, in our behaviors. You know, we disappear. We go off grid. People don't hear from us for like yeah. days, weeks on end, you know, or we become, you know, angry or we're yelling and people are like, well, what's up with you? Why are you so irritable all the time? You know, uh, and so, you know, when these things are happening, they're messages, right? They're mm. messages for, for, for us to pay attention to. And it doesn't mean, as I said before, it doesn't mean that we have to stop and, and make huge changes. Yeah. You know, our, yeah. our bodies are usually not in that space to make huge changes. And yeah. I'm sure you talk about clients about this, yeah. you know, small incremental changes. Yes. More sustainable. As I wrote down when you're, when you're talking, this is something I'm excited to teach on later on, but 
a big aspect of um, different realms that I've been a leader, it's important to gauge people's capacity. Like being able to gauge people's capacity and because well, then that identifies, that helps me identify with them. What is too much too soon? What is too much too fast? What is too little for too long? What's too new too soon? And because once more, they'll vamp into a stress state and they'll either shut down or they'll try and fight or they'll try and peace. So it's a part of leadership because when we can identify these parts in ourselves and get really acquainted and really connected to these parts in ourselves, well, the point of this all is to be better equipped to then do so and hold the space for our families and for our practice members and identify where are they at in all of this, because that's the one thing that connects us all, it's energy. And when we can sensitize ourselves to the quality of the energy that we're experiencing, we can sensitize our energy to the quality of the energy that other people are experiencing due to their needs getting met or due to them just getting stuck wherever they may be at. Yes. Yes. I love that. You know, I love talking about energy. And so, so, so when we, you know, and I talk with my clients often about this, you know, capacity. So when we, when we think of, you know, having capacity and, you know, we have, our energy fields go far beyond us, but we can start to tune into our energy fields. And when we are having less capacity, our energy fields feel tight and constricted, you know? And when we have greater capacity, we are more expansive. And, and when we're out there, we are, we're more in, in touch with other people's energy fields, right? When we're more yes. expansive, we we're can... More, we're more yes, yes. And it doesn't mean that we have to absorb their energy, you know? I mean, some people do, and it's important to, to you know, recognize that, hey, is this energy mine or am I taking it on from someone else? Good question. But, yeah, yeah. And you can actually ask yourself that the more that you practice listening to yourself and your body and your energy, the more that you'll actually get those answers. And those answers, when we're when we're tuning in, are immediate. It's not the, you know, they happen within the first second or two. So the more that we practice getting attuned, the more that we'll hear that rather than the overriding of the answers and saying, oh, this is what I should be feeling. But, but coming back to that idea of having more expansive energy, when we are having more expansive energy, we have more capacity. Yes. We have more yes. capacity for ourselves and for others that yes. we don't get so great. We don't, we can show up for other people without it feeling like, oh, this is just an energy suck. I can't do this. I don't, I don't want to do this. Mm -hmm. no. um, and so cultivating practices, learning for yourself, what helps me to feel um, more expansive? And, and one of the things that uh, one of the very easy things that I tell, that I uh, uh, use with clients <clears throat> is I have them just close their eyes and, and I say, say out loud, 
the words, I have to. I have to. And notice as you're saying that, what your body feels like in or around your body. I have to. Mm. I have to. And then now say, I choose to. Mm. I choose to. And say that a few more times and notice once again what it feels like inside and outside your body. And then go back to, I have to. I have to. And then mm. I choose to. And and if you did that, what did you notice? Did you notice anything? Oh, I noticed immediately, like the have to, it just feels compressive. Like it feels compressive in the system. It feels, um, it feels external versus choice, which like choice, mm -hmm. I think comes with some parasympathetic, parasympathetic activation more. So it's like, ah, yes, this feels good. Mm -hmm. I get, because it's all about autonomy. And I also just think of the three C's of cultivating wellness and, you know, once more anchoring back context, choice and community and when i love this program i choose to this then you're then volunteering your energy into a decision into your life into your workplace into your relationships and i think that that's very empowering because a dysregulated nervous system it doesn't need to be that way forever it can heal and it can learn a secure attachment it can learn and adapt that's why neuroplasticity is such an amazing model and an amazing just biological fact and that our nervous systems are learning and taking in every single second moment in cue once more non-consciously which is the 90 to 99 percent of why we think why we feel why we do what are our habits and a lot of people when you can consciously leverage and feed the non-conscious well that's where you we can have some very very powerful changes so i love that as an activity and i trust that our listeners you know can bring that into things to slow things down like I choose to uh, versus I have to. Because the have to, you identify I, the voices as well too. Yes, yes, it's it is just as you said. It's it's coming from this external. Like who's telling me I have to do this? Right. You know? Whose voice is and, that? Who said that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And it's so so we get to to have this experience of wow. All right, I. I get to change my mindset. Yeah. Um, and the other aspect of that is, oh, I choose to feels more expansive. And so you get to start to practice and learn for yourself. What does expansion feel like for me? What does contraction feel like for me? So mm. that when you are engaging in experiences or behaviors or taking actions, you can check in and say, wait, is this expansive? Wait, what, what does expansive feel like for me? Oh, that, that feels like when I have to, okay. Is this similar to that? I have to feeling, mm. you know, and so, so it's a way to start to train your, your, your body and your energy and your awareness. Mm -hmm. um, what is going on? Mm, because then you'll be more non-consciously adept at being yes. do it in the moment. 
you're having conversation, yeah. you're in an environment and you're like, ooh, or you're like, ah. And I think that's such a great skill yeah. to just teach people to trust their own um, sense of their own senses, really, so that they can they can better discern. Because I think discernment is just a very, very big aspect of things to just navigate life in general. A lot of people, they're not using their processor. They're not thinking, they're not feeling, and they're just presented all this overwhelm of stimulus information. And then what's coming out in their display or in their own expression is then the stressed, overwhelmed, fighting or flighting, freezing or fawning reaction versus conscious response. And that's where I want my people, you know, over at the source, my practice, my coaching clients, organizations, it's just to dial them into once more, I want y'all to be able to make sure you're choosing and you're not just, you're not just reacting. Exactly. It's all about conscious choice and responding to a situation, a stimulus, you know, versus this reaction, this survival response, this trauma response, this and and so when we feel constricted, all we want to do is like go into a hole and not be bothered or we want, you know, so we push people away or we run away or we just, you know, um, mm. cover ourselves up and we just pretend like, okay, no one can see me, right? So, so really recognizing that uh, as you start to become more aware, and like I said, I, I, I feel like I, I love teaching my clients that because it's such a, an easy practice and mm. almost everybody can start to feel that just as mm. they practice those words. Mm. And, and so, and once again, so words, you know, spoken or, or our thoughts are going to impact our energy. So, you know, the more that we can become aware of our thoughts, our words, our actions, and how they impact us, um, uh, then we can become uh, more empowered to really uh, take ownership of not just our bodies and our energy systems, but how we choose to be in the world. Mm. Mm, so rich and I know you're preaching to the choir. Uh, I got two. I got two. Two final questions for you, uh, Doctor Wilson. This has been this has been so great. I'll just ask you, you know, really briefly, how well received are you? Because people, you know, they can hear you're an exact that you're a coach. They see your your credentials, your initials. Like, oh, okay, she's like one of us. Like, but how how would you say you're received in terms of burnout, moral injury, perfectionism, workaholism, like? the companies you speak to, the organizations you speak to, your peers, is there any backlash or resistance? You know, there hasn't been. And, and I think it, it, let me, let me say that actually, let me back that up. Um, When I first started out, first started out, say with EFT, because EFT, I've been doing EFT now for over a decade. So, so I was still working clinically when I first discovered EFT and I was like, oh my God, everybody needs to know this. This is fabulous. I would bring it into my psychiatric patients. I was trying to bring it into my organizations. They were like, what is this? What is this woo woo stuff? You know, I've worked in Harvard organizations. Right. They were like, yeah, th- what? This isn't evidence-based. It is, by the way, evidence-based. There's been a lot of research, especially in the past, you know, 
five to I'd say seven years in particular, but <clears throat> but yes, uh, when I when I was bringing it forth, I was still I loved it, and yet there was this fear for me of I am this Harvard trained physician, I don't want to um, uh, just be viewed as a kook. And, mm -hmm. and I was very well respected. Uh, I have been nominated, I was put on the board of registration of medicine in Massachusetts. So it was a governor appointment. I was no nominated by, you know, my organization and, and all of that. So, you know, things like that, people would send patients to me because they're like, oh, Dr. Hankins will work with them. She's really good with, you know. So all of these things, and I didn't want to jeopardize my reputation. Um, and so because I was unsure of myself, it wasn't as, as um, accepted, I think. I mean, there was a, a, a point of just the medical culture itself, not ready for it. But yes. also, I yes. wasn't ready to bring it forth with the confidence mm -hmm. and the like, you know, the the sense of self, um, my own self-esteem, my own self-worth that was independent of other people's views of me. Mm -hmm. Right. So so in in I, I would say it was mixed reception then. And I think it was a combination of those factors that, you know, medicine mm -hmm. wasn't necessarily ready for it. And even coaching at that point, when I mm -hmm. went through my own massive burnout, coaching, physician coaching was not a thing. You know, when I got mm -hmm. certified as an executive coach, physician coaching was unheard of. That was not a thing. So, <clears throat> So there, there are uh, various things, but also, you know, me owning that this is who I am. This is a part of what I do and I love it and I'm proud of it and I know it's effective. And so the more confidence and self-belief that I have, not only in my methodology, but also in myself and my skills and my purpose and how I choose to show up in the world, the more that it's accepted. Mm. Oh, so, man. so now, yes, it's accepted. <laughs> well, that's, that's just so, so rich as people ask me the same thing. And I think this is, this really starts to bring a beautiful circle to this amazing conversation being biracial, like I'm proving in black, you're white and Nigerian it's interesting how we needed to navigate our own worlds of understanding who we are and how is it that we want to show up and you know what's the essence of ourselves and that's a direct reflection to you know our work and the different things that we're called to like people don't think of you know a chiropractor and they look at me they don't think chiropractor but you know doing talks to hospitals and more organizations uh, I think someone asked, like, you know, was there much was there much uh, resistance that you're a chiropractor or blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you know, I don't I was like, I didn't I thought it was I thought I'm pretty well received in the spaces that I go into because I'm really good at talking about what's common as a human. 
and also able to talk evidence-based, ever, 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 also able to reference being clinically backed neurologically and also um, referencing neuroscience and bio, like referencing all the different sciences that gives a tangible bridge that people yeah. can digest, they can understand, they can believe, they can appreciate, mm -hmm. that they can apply in their own lives because I think truth is pretty irrefutable and people reference and can recognize it when it's right in face of them themselves if they're open and willing for it that's its own conversation but i think being able to have common vernacular and common ground to give people something yeah. to like sink their teeth into then gives them something that they can apply themselves with yes absolutely so you know with my work with physicians um there's this automatic oh you you've been in the trenches you know you know what it's mm. like you know yeah so, especially when we're in these professions where uh, it is, I, I look at physician education as, you know, years long hazing ritual, you know, and, <laughs> so, you know, so you are broken down and rebuilt in the image of healthcare, you know, and, and you get to, and at some point, you know, many of us are like, wait, I don't like this image or healthcare as it is, is not the image that I took on or signed up for. This is not. And so there's this misalignment, right? It's like this now. And, and so, so really, I love what you said about having a common language, having uh, evidence-based, having a bridge so that people understand that this is not about, it's not out there, it's not othering. You know, people are all, you know, so many people are like, oh, it's it's the other people. It's the other kind, of, it's the other organization. It's that other, you know, it's like, no, it's me. It's me. Mm. Mm. And how, what is the me? that I choose to be and how can I listen and take in this information, this knowledge, this wisdom, this support, this nurturing that this individual in front of me, this coach, this speaker, this, you know, workshop leader, this physician, this chiropractor, this, you know, this colleague, this friend, you know, this partner, what is it? that they're saying to me that I can take in because there's a part of me that absolutely can use this. I might not need to take it all in. I can, I get to choose, but there's a part of me that would likely benefit from at least some of this. Mm. Let me take that in. Let me, let me allow myself to put down my guard and I can, I can filter, but I don't have to put up, you know, the complete barrier. Hmm. Hmm. Because I mean, what it is? I mean, we're semi-permeable membranes. Mm -hmm. Yes, we, we are. Yes, we are. In. Like we're that we can yeah. form boundaries, but that's I love. I'm still stuck on. You're like, it's me. It's it's me, and I just felt that that deep level of ownership, and I think it does come, and I think that's why we're at an advantage because a lot of people aren't willing to look 
and look in the face of death or trauma or deal with themselves, the little T's, the big T's, take responsibility, and then packaging that into a very uh, human-based application, which I think is just so beautiful with the work that you do. Very relatable, very, I think an element of humility is something that you come with as well too. Um, that's just so, it makes things digestible. It makes things very receivable. I'd say safe as well too. I think humility, is a is a prerequisite for safety because uh when you're able to just like bow your head or be able to recognize the human in me recognizes the human in you well i don't it, it kind of just dissolves barriers and i think that when we're able to dissolve those barriers then we can access more of our humanness together yes yes as you said that i remember years ago i had a patient psychiatric patient who, um, you know, she, she, she had a significant trauma history and she was telling me something and I said something to her and she was like, how do you know that? Like, it's like, you're in my head. And, and she's like, I just, I don't, do you, you see me? And I said, and I didn't say it to her because, you know, uh, but, but I said it in my head because I am. You. Mm. Mm. We are all each other on some level. We are all connected. We are all part of this larger consciousness, this greater consciousness. And when we are hurting or um, aggressing or all of those things that we are doing it to others, but we're doing it to ourselves. So really looking at what, how do I want to be in what kind of world do I want to create? And what kind of energies do I want to gravitate towards me? Mm. You know? mm. So, so yeah, that we could go off on a whole other discussion about all of that, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is, this has been absolutely fantastic. And, you know, I'd love to, this is a new question. It's brief, but you know, who do you think, would be a great guest to have on Soul Coffee to explore some of these other conversations. Like, who comes to mind, Doc? Oh, geez. Um, you know, I think one of my uh, one of my uh, coach colleagues, actually, uh, who is she's a wonderful uh, she's a physician who is really working in the space of uh, sustainability. Like Oof. what is, you know, sustainability. Good word. And, and so well-being and sustainable living, you know. Um, mm. And she works with physicians and she works with teens and LGBTQ community, like, uh, you know, teens especially. Um, and her name is Dr. Tracy O'Connell. Uh, and, uh, yeah, she's, uh, she's a phenomenal human being, phenomenal physician, but, you know, just at her core, just a phenomenal human being who I think 
uh, talks about trauma, you know, back when Clubhouse got started, she and I did several talks on the trauma of physicianhood. And uh, yeah, and so, you know, she's, she's, um, yeah, I think she would be a great addition. Okay, noted, noted. And the final Soul Coffee question, Dr. Melissa Hankins, if you were to describe your flavor of Soul Coffee to the world, what are some of the components to it? Or what are some of the adjectives that you would utilize to describe your soul expression? Oh, wow. The first thing that comes to mind is rich and bold. <laughs> and, um, you know, that was the first, you know, not rich, like monetarily, but rich, get, like depth, I, the depth, yeah, yeah, you know, the depth. Yeah. And, and the boldness, you know, just kind of going out, which I wouldn't have said about myself, like even a decade ago, but, um, or certainly, you know, 20 years ago, but yes, bold and, um, uh, and yet um, having a lingering kind of, uh, you know, not an aftertaste like a bitter, but a lingering good feel like energized, but calm, not jittery, but like, you know, I just feel more alert. I'm more, you know, I'm here. I'm more here, you mm. know? Um, mm. And so I think that that's, uh, yeah. Sounds like you got some good adaptogens in there too, doc. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, you know? Oh, that's so good, Dr. Lisa. Tell me, uh, tell our listeners, they resonated with you, they want to find out more about you, how can they find you and where can they reach out to you? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, uh, a few things, uh, you can go to my website, melissahankinscoaching.com. Um, you can uh, find me on LinkedIn and Instagram at Melissa Hankins, MD. Uh, and uh, you can also email me at hello at Melissa Hankins coaching.com. Uh, um, happy to, you know, talk with physicians, healthcare providers, uh, executives about burnout, perfectionism, creating psychological safety for ourselves, for organizations. Um, talking about, uh, which we actually didn't talk about, but vicarious trauma and second victim syndrome, you know, um, uh, and, and using EFT, you know, for, for that. Uh, um, but yes, uh, I do free, a uh, free consultation for folks. So, um, happy to have people reach out and, uh, start a conversation and, and get to a place where you are feeling whole. Mm. Delicious. Because we are whole, you know, we've just been fragmented in, in, in so many ways, but at our essence, we are whole and we're just, you know, the fragments are there. They're holding on by strings. We just need to pull them back and, yeah. and be present. Okay. Picture like balloons, like people like pulling back all their balloons or I picture puzzle pieces. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. Goodness. Well, Dr. Melissa, thank you so much. This has been so rich of an episode that I'm so appreciative of. Really feels like 
ever since Clubhouse first began. We met 2021. This has been a, a train on coming into the station. So thank you so much. I'm so excited to have more conversations. Digest this. We'll chop it up later, of course, as well, too. But hey, everybody, thank you for listening. Please reach out to Dr. Melissa if this resonated. Uh, share this with a friend, share this with a peer, especially if you're a healthcare professional. So that way more and more folk can just have more permission to listen to themselves and how that can shift an organization as it takes an individual, but it also takes a lot more voices that are like, hey, we need to shift this, especially this next decade to combat or to help transmute the exodus that's going on, suicide rates in healthcare as well, too, and all the different mental health disturbances. So we got to come back to a place of recognize our own wholeness and it has to start with the individual so that way we can shift things. So I uh, love y'all. I appreciate y'all. Until next time. Peace. Oh, yay. Thank yay. you. Uh